2: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology, and it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, Just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available... Anywhere you buy books, amazonbookshop.org and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me, and fifty of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the at the front, will be there, and you can be there too. And it is named after my husband's mother who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Elizabeth Passarella was a former editor at Real Simple and Vogue, where she spent more than 20 years writing about food, travel, home design, and parenting. Her writing has been featured in media outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Parents, Martha Stewart Weddings, Coastal Living, and Apartment Therapy is the Kitchen. Elizabeth is now a contributing editor for Southern Living, where she writes the Social Graces column. Her wickedly smart and utterly hilarious debut memoir, Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York, is about the absurdity, chaos, and strange sacredness of her life on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I hope you enjoy our talk. I wanted to be Elizabeth's like best friend after <laughs> after I finished our interview. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. By the way, I love this cover too. I'm holding it up on on our video, which listeners can't see, but it's it's particularly inviting, I think. (laughs) Anyway, so Elizabeth, tell me how you decided to write this book. Why did you decide to write this book? And tell listeners also basically what it's about. Okay. So Good Apple is a collection of essays.
0: It's stories about my life. And to be completely honest with you, I I didn't really set out to write this exact book. I've had a career in magazines. I've been in, I've written for women's magazines and been an editor of magazines for about 20 years. And so I've always loved nonfiction. It's what I love to read. It's what I love to write. And so I always assumed that maybe I would write a book about my life experiences, but I never really anticipated bringing sort of my faith into it. I just assumed I would write a funny, interesting, relatable book about life. And I was thinking about all the magazine articles that I have edited or written over the years. And there's so many that we talked about how to make your marriage stronger, how to be a better parent, or how to deal with a difficult friendship. And there were many times where I'd get to the end of that article and I would think, okay, this is great. And I love all these tips, but what if you follow all this advice and it still doesn't work out? What if you follow all these tips and your marriage is still really hard or that friendship still falls apart? And for me, I'm a Christian. And so for me, that's kind of what my foundation is built in. That's sort of the viewpoint that I look through when I, when I deal with difficult situations. So then I started thinking that I was talking to a colleague and a former editor who now happens to be my book agent. And we were talking about ideas for books and she said, okay, you know, it would be great to write about your life in New York or raising kids in Manhattan or all of these small space living, all these things you're passionate about, but it's got to appeal to all those evangelical Christians in the middle of the country. And I thought, oh, I can do that. <laughs> That's who I am." And she was a little bit surprised, but she said, "You're not what I think of when I think of a Christian. When I think about that, you're not what I think of. You're this New Yorker, and you hold a lot of the same views and political views and worldviews that I do. And so that was another big part of it is I just felt like this kind of book in terms of how non-Christians look at Christians doesn't really exist. I wanted to write something where I gave a different viewpoint of what people think of as a Christian. And I think it works the other way. All the people that I grew up with in the South, that's where I grew up. And people who are really strong Christians, I think they look at New Yorkers and they look at the way I live my life and think, well, I can't possibly have anything in common with her. She's raising three kids in this two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan in this crazy city, And so I wanted them to look at these stories and see themselves too and sort of realize that we have a lot in common. So it is, yes, stories about my life. I talk about growing up in the South. I talk about growing up in a pretty conservative Republican family and kind of switching my political views as I got older and moved to New York and lived here for a while. I tell stories about heavy stuff. I mean, I talk about miscarriages. I talk about death of a loved one, but there's a lot of lighthearted, funny stories too. There's stories about you know, a rat getting trapped in my apartment building, which was a really not a great day. So there's there's some light stuff and some heavy stuff, but I feel like most of all, I just wanted to be entertaining. It's mostly embarrassing stories about me. I I look the worst of everyone in my family. As personal as the stories are, I definitely come out looking the worst. So
2: <laughs> one of my favorite stories was when you got trapped in the elevator and I think it was your yes. building <laughs> super somebody had to take the baby out of the crib and like sit and play yep. with Yeah, on the floor while you got extracted. That's such a New York story. That was just so perfect. Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes. And I think everyone hears that and they think you left your baby in your apartment while you went downstairs to the basement. And I said, yeah. I mean, if you lived in a huge house in the suburbs somewhere and you went out to your mailbox to get the mail while your baby was napping, that's how far away from him I was. But that's New York living. I left him in the apartment and then I got stuck in the elevator for almost an hour. So yes, the staff of my building, we've lived here now for 12 years. So they know us very well. And this very nice man who works in our building went upstairs and got my baby out of the crib and played with him when he woke up from his nap. So,
2: and you were so um, funny. You were like, they call me Pasa, and I'm not sure if they think that's my last name or not. But it's too late now because we've been they've been doing this for like a decade.
0: <laughs> yes, you always have those people who have your name slightly off, but you've known them too long. You've passed yep. the point of no return where you can tell them they've got it wrong. Yeah, there's one guy in my building that I think it's it's just his nickname for us.
2: So there was this whole religious dimension to the book, but that was only a slice of the book. You could have almost done it without it. Like, I feel like it didn't, it didn't permeate every single chapter and every single experience. It just like set a framework for it. So I don't feel like it in any way left anybody out, especially the fact that you, well, first of all, you define evangelical and what it really means, but also the fact that you grew up with a Jewish father and (laughs) then you have a whole chapter on like Jews I've known and loved and, or like something, (laughs) there's some funny title you had. I should look up the title. All the Jews I've loved. Yes, yes, yes. To all the Jews. (laughs) to all the Jews i I've left. It's like oh so <laughs> funny. And just like your experience in New York and different religions. And there's some where you put in your points of view and how it is to be like a Democrat among a lot of people who, who aren't in your background. But then it's also so many other things. So I don't know. It's I found that part super interesting and not talked about as much. But I also thought it could have been amazing even if it wasn't for that. Like I don't in other words, that made it more interesting, but I That was only one piece of it. I don't want people to think that was like, you know, even though it's part of the title, that that's what this was all about. Because I don't think it was all about religion at all. I struggled, I
0: think, at first, whether I should put... That word on the title, because I I, I think you're right. I don't want to turn anybody off. If you are someone who has a different faith background or no faith background at all, I really wrote the book originally, primarily when I thought about my readership. I thought about the people that I do life with in New York people who I know through my kids' school, people I work with, people that live in my building, my neighbors. I really thought about a non Christian audience. That's who I wrote it for. I think there are plenty of Christian women who will pick up this book and enjoy it because I don't. think there's a lot of Christian books out there that have an irreverent sense of humor. And I hope that this book does, but, but yes, I, I think you're right. I absolutely wrote it primarily for the audience that I do life with all the time and, and anyone else who doesn't come from this background.
2: And I found that part fascinating. I didn't like, I'm glad you put it in the title because I like to hear other people's experiences and points of view. I mean, I don't want to only read about my own like <laughs> I don't, I, that would get yeah. boring after a while, right? You want to learn about new things and new backgrounds and like what makes you tick and all the rest. So anyway, I thought it was a really interesting piece and uh, about a culture and a particular sort of sect, I guess, that I didn't know that much about ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. But-
0: Well, and I'd also, like I mentioned kind of, it, you said, I sort of addressed this in the introduction of the book. You know, the word evangelical has become so charged. I mean, I certainly do not walk around the streets of New York using that word to describe myself very often. It's become such a politically charged word. And so that was something else I wanted to, not like I'm trying to take the word back. I don't really care. It's just a word. But I also feel like people do have a misconception. I mean, For me, it's just a really, it's sort of a theological framework, I guess, as opposed to a political one. And I think that it's been sort of co-opted by by politics, unfortunately, which is why most evangelical Christians, even if they are, really don't use that word anymore, nor do I. But from a theological standpoint, I think it still does define me.
2: And I love how much you put in about your marriage because I don't know, I've been feeling like very snoopy lately. I don't know if that's even the right word. Like I love like peeking into the, the cracks in the curtains and seeing what's going on in other people's marriages. Yeah. Of people who are like my age because... For a while, I feel like nobody was really talking about it or, you know, only your closest friends, I feel like, share. And that's why so many people get divorced and you're like shocked by it. Mm -hmm. I know I got divorced and I never talked about my marriage while I was in it. And I rarely do now anyway, but... I don't know. I just like always appreciate when people are willing to share. And the fact that you shared how you like yell at your husband or that you get annoyed that he plays golf all day and, you know, do this like passive aggressive thing where you like pretend like you have to work and get better at going to the spa. And like, there are just so many things you put in that were so relatable and awesome. And... Just amazing, and even how. And you, and you also. We were talking before about how we have both married tennis pros. Because I'm remarried.
1: Yes.
2: yes. So has your tennis gotten better? Has he ever taught you? No. No, No, my tennis is not great. Uh, We do not play
0: together. So when we were dating, we played occasionally, and it turned into a huge fight. So this, yes, I, I clearly fight a lot with my husband. So it did not go well when we were dating and we would try to play tennis together because he just, he is a very laid back guy. His reaction to every shot I missed or anything that I wasn't doing well was, "We well, you just need to play more. Yeah, you just need to play more. And I'm like, no, I want you to tell me exactly what to do. I want you to tell me exactly how to hold the racket or exactly which way to move to make that shot go in. And he'd say, yeah, you just need to play more. So it did not go well. And I just didn't really play that much. And you know, because you live in New York too, it can be hard to find a tennis court in New York City. Hard, it's not yeah. the type of sport that really lends. Manhattan is not, does not lend itself well to playing.
1: Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home, but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb.
0: a lot of tennis. So anyway, I just, I don't, I don't play a lot of tennis. I don't love to exercise anyway. And so he does play with my kids, which is nice. He plays with the kids and he plays on his own, but no, he doesn't. It's sort of like golf. He says all the time, oh, I wish you would take up golf. I wish you'd play golf. I said, you know, you say that, but I think actually you just want me to play the one day out of the year that you can't find any wellness to play with. I don't think you actually <laughs> want me to play golf with you on a regular basis. You would really like to play with people who know what they're doing. And it's the same with tennis. He wants to get a workout. He wants to play with guys that he went to college with and they play together. And so I don't play a lot of tennis. I'm, I I'm like, not
2: terrible, but I'm not good. If you guys were to play golf together, I don't think that would help with the fighting
0: no, no, it would not. No, yeah, I but I, I agree with you. I I think I makes people uncomfortable sometimes because I tell all the the dirty secrets about my marriage or how much I don't like my children sometimes. And but you know we all feel it. We all feel it, even if nobody's talking about it. They're definitely doing it. They're definitely having those arguments behind closed doors. I tend to have a temper. I'm much more of a verbal confrontational person so i probably fight more than the average person does but that's where in some sense where the faith element comes into because i feel like i'm very secure in who i am and sort of what grounds me and so i feel like i don't have to put forth any sort of image of being the perfect wife or the perfect mom because i am definitely not i am very below average on both of those things so i feel really confident being honest because I know where my real identity comes from in a sense, if that makes sense. So it's easy for me to be, I guess, shameless.
2: (laughs) Well, it's refreshing and it's, as a reader in particular, it's, it's well, A, very relatable and B, very entertaining. I mean, it's funny. All the stuff you're, you're saying is, is very entertaining and funny. So that's great. I mean, what else can you want in a book? I mean, (laughs) thank you. Yes. That's the goal. And even like when you talk about, you're basically growing up in the city, right? Mm -hmm. Growing up into adulthood, I should say. And even your days of like, as I read this, when you were like at Tortilla Flats and Automatic Slims and all this stuff, I was like, I was there. I bet you we were in the same place at the same time and we're about the same age. And like everything you kept going through, I was like, me too. Anyway, (laughs) it was crazy. Cause like when I picked up this book, I never expected to have so much in common with the author of this book, not knowing who you were or anything about you. I was just like, oh, this will be like one of those experiences that I don't really relate to, but it'll be so interesting. And in fact, like you're probably like on my block, you know, it was, (laughs) and also funny how you included all of the stuff of like, almost like explaining yourself to people who don't live in New York, right? As if you've never lived. I've lived in New York my whole life, so I get it. But tell me about including all of that.
0: Well, I think people, I mean, listen, I have tons of friends who still live in Memphis, Tennessee, where I grew up. I have tons of friends who live all over the South and other cities. And so they look at my life and they think, I mean, most of them have known me a long time at this point, but I'm I we live in a, an apartment that's two bedrooms. We have three kids. One of my children sleeps in a closet. It seems very normal to us. But I do think that people yeah are very intrigued. So I I have this whole chapter that's sort of like a QA that talks about all the all the quirky things about living in an apartment and living in a building in Manhattan. But I think that's fascinating to people, especially now. And you know when I wrote this book, of course it was Finished a year ago, right before the pandemic hit. I mean, I finished it in January of 2020. And now I think even more so people are curious about New York what's going on, what's life like there. And so I really think of the book as kind of a love letter to New York. I, Like you said, I grew up, I moved here right after college and I've lived here for 20 years and I really feel like this is my home now. I feel so much like a New Yorker and I love the city so much and I think it's such a wonderful place to raise kids and it's such a beautiful community and that's just come out more even since the pandemic started because a lot of people left or, you know, you're, you're much more confined to kind of your neighborhood. And so you get to know your neighbors more and you're happier to see them when you go outside. And so it has made the city feel like a really resilient small town to me in some ways. So I just love New York so much. So I wanted this book to be sort of a love letter to the city too. And everyone loves New York. Even if they don't live here, they they're curious about what life is like here. So I hope that I give people a little bit of a glimpse and it's a,
2: and it's a good one. Totally. It's nice to see a mom in New York sort of telling it how yeah. it is because everyone's like, how can you do that with kids? And I'm like, well, you do it. You just do it. I don't know. You just yeah. do. And
0: like, like you, my husband grew up here. So I, I do give people the caveat that for him, this is his hometown. So when they're when we first started having kids and there was something that would seem sort of strange to me, it wasn't strange to him. Because mm-hmm. this was how he grew up. So when we started letting our daughter walk home from school just this year by herself, and I thought, okay, is this a good idea? Should we do this? And he's like, oh my gosh, when I was in third grade, I was walking to Johnny So-and-so's house down Park Avenue or whatever it was. So she's not in third grade, by the way. She's in fifth grade. But he was doing all these things growing up. And so it just gives me a nice perspective that he grew up here. He's a
2: very normal person. He's <laughs> and, and it it made everything feel a little more palatable, I guess. I think... I mean, I grew up in New York and I believe I'm a normal person. My husband might disagree with that, but, you know, and so are all the people I grew up with. I mean, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means. My husband likes to say more people are born and raised in New York than any
0: other city in the country. Isn't that amazing? When people say, oh my gosh, you're raising kids there. And he's like, yes, lots of
2: kids grow up in New York. Mm -hmm. So it's true. I bet I knew him growing up. Anyway, we'll come back to that. (laughs) It's also a very small town. He was on the East side too. I don't know if you were on the the East side. I think- Yes, I was on the Upper East side. I, there, it's just a very small world between like siblings and people you know and anyway. Yeah. So in that way, I do also feel like it's a small town. Tell me about your decision to include the whole piece about your miscarriages, which also feels like very timely with the op-ed the other day. Now, I'm how can I blank on her name? This is Meghan like, Markle. Thank you. When Meghan Markle, which I thought was really great, by the way. It was. Tell me about that decision. Well, that was
0: another one where I just, I have no problem talking about it. I think that when... So I had two kids who are 10 and eight now, but when they were probably six and four, I guess, we had sort of thought about having another kid, but I was 39. I had two miscarriages before I finally got pregnant with our our two and a half year old now. So I didn't have him until I was 41. So obviously the statistics would bear out that it's very possible that I would miscarry. And the first miscarriage I had, as I started talking to friends and anyone will tell you this, once you start talking to people, you realize so many people you know went through the exact same thing. So it is it is so common. And I think that maybe the reason people don't talk about it is it's just a, such a personal bodily issue. I mean, it's it, it takes place usually in private or in the hospital. And it's there's just a lot of hormonal issues that you go through. But again, I... I will almost talk about anything. I'm not I'm the person at the dinner party that you either really love or really don't like that I'm that I'm talking about a lot of personal things. So, I just wanted other people to read it and realize that yes, of course it's common and we know that statistically, but it's, you probably know a lot of people who have been through this and it's different for every woman, but there were certain commonalities. I think when I started talking to other friends who had miscarriages, I think the sort of hormonal cliff that you fall off a couple of weeks after this happened, just the simple things of you're not pregnant anymore, but if you take a pregnancy test, it will still show that you're pregnant. And that is so emotionally wrenching. And I think that that's something people don't talk about. All of us have sat and, and, and peed on a thousand different sticks to try to figure out if we are pregnant. And then you've lost a baby and you pee on these sticks and it still says you're pregnant. And even just that small detail, I think, is something that was so impossibly hard for me to, to get through. And I want people to know, hey, this happens. This is this is one of these really annoying things that you're gonna come up against. And this happens and it's normal and it will it will pass. Why keep peeing on the sticks? I don't know. Because okay. you're because you're waiting. <laughs> Because you're waiting for your hormone levels to drop to the point that you don't appear pregnant so that you can try again, because that's the big thing is like the minute you miss care, you're thinking, okay, well, when can I try again? And it's just a lot of waiting and it's a lot of time.
2: Got it. Understood. So when did you find the time and how did you find the space and all of that to write this book with three kids?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Okay. I will say, I said this earlier, but the book was finished before the pandemic. If the book had not been finished before the pandemic, I'm not sure we would be talking right now. That has made work so much more difficult. But I work from home. I've been a freelance writer for a long time. I work from home. But when we did have this third kid and he's home with a sitter or someone, I couldn't work at home anymore. So I pay a lot of money to babysitters. And the summer of 2019, I paid a lot of money to summer camps and day camps to keep my kids occupied. And I actually go to a library. That is probably near you. It's the New York Society Library. You're it's say a that. private yes. library. <laughs> a lot of writers go there. It is not expensive. It's a, it's a bargain in Manhattan for a yearly membership. And they just have really sort of sad, depressing desks in the stacks. That They have really nice private rooms, but I never use those. I just go to the stacks. I sit at a little desk and I'm completely isolated. You can't even talk on the phone. You can't bring food. So that's where I wrote this book. I wrote it in the stacks of the New York
2: society library on 79th and Madison. I feel like with enough time, I will interview everybody who's ever tried to write a book in the New York society library. Yes. I, feel like stars-
0: I already know a couple of them and I yeah. see them sometimes. Yeah, So funny. It's, it's a great, it's a beautiful old library. It's a beautiful building and it's quiet and there's just nobody bothering you. So I, that's what I did. I, I paid as many babysitters as I could afford.
2: That's awesome. I love that. And what are you hoping to do next? Do you have like more essay books or are you good with getting all of this out? Like what's the... Well, there's,
0: there, yes, I am under contract to write another one. So okay, I've got to, I've got to come up with some more stories. I've got to have some more things to happen. No, I will see. We'll see. It's interesting as this book makes its way out into the world, what resonates with people and which chapters people really love and which ones, you know, team seem to attract the most attention. But yes, this is, listen, I'm a one trick pony. I do not have a lot of talents. This is about it. Okay. So I'm not a fiction writer. There's no good, there's gonna be no romance novel for me. This is sort of what I enjoy and what what I like writing. So hopefully, yes, I will write another book of essays. I would love to do that
2: down the road. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Oh gosh. Well,
0: you know, I came up through the magazine world uh, to the journalism world. So I did not come, I came to book publishing that way, but I would say. From my perspective, you probably will write a lot of things that you don't like to write about before you get to write about something you do like to write about. I think about all the years as a young editorial assistant or assistant editor, how I wrote so many captions for fashion spreads that I did not care about at all, but it it taught me so many lessons. It taught me about word choice and how to say something in the most economical way possible. And I spent a lot of time looking over proofs and seeing what editors changed and why it sounded better that way. And I studied those. And it made me a better writer. So I think don't shy away from those kinds of assignments, even if it's not what you want to do, just be humble and use everything as a learning experience. And I would also say, this is something that Catherine Newman, my friend, Catherine Newman, who I used to work with at Real Simple. And I think she's been on your podcast. She's a wonderful human and writer, but she said, you know, be nice, turn things in on time, be easy to work with, you know, do your job well and be nice to everybody because there is I cannot tell you how many people I worked with as assistants who are now the editors in chief of magazines or who are content directors at really big platforms. And so you just never know where someone's going to end up. So be a hard worker and, and be nice and <laughs> be, be pleasant to work with and do a great job because the people that you're working with now, even though it might be at a really small publication or someone who's even younger than you, you never know, they could, they could go on to, to have a really big job that could be really helpful to you down the road
2: love that that's great advice awesome well thank you Elizabeth and that was fantastic and one day we can meet in Central Park and uh, yes <laughs> you can go on a walk around the reservoir you want
0: to Walk well, around. thank the you reservoir. for everything that you do for authors it's just so uplifting and wonderful especially for people like me who are first-timers so
2: thanks for having uh, me well I'm really excited for your book to come out I'll be cheering for you thank you awesome. okay all right have a great bye. day bye